Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, May 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear from the Public Safety Commissioner as officials and families around the state pause to remember fallen officers. We in law enforcement sometimes develop a us versus them attitude. But he said, you know what I've learned is it's not. He said people came up to him and thanked him for his sacrifice and for his hard work. A Mississippi mayor is in the nation's capital to make the case for investments to support the health of the Mississippi River. And your health minute. Find out how living organ donations can prolong one person's life without taking another. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi officers killed in the line of duty are being honored during special events this week. It's National Police Week. Local and state law enforcement agencies and members of the public are coming out to show their support and gratitude for the men and women the state has lost while in service. The Department of Public Safety held its annual tribute to the agency's fallen officers on Tuesday. Most of the 33 state law enforcement officers who were struck down serving the public since 1940 were troopers. Five were Bureau of Narcotics agents. Marshall Fisher is the public safety commissioner. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby what the memorial means. For Mississippi, uh, this is actually this whole week, National Police Memorial Week. It's uh, meaningful for the officers who served with the gentlemen that we recognize today. It's meaningful from the standpoint that the people we still have on the road are still agents, still working the streets, uh, realize the potential for the ultimate sacrifice they could make any given day. But most importantly, uh, this time is for the families because they're the ones, not only have they lost a loved one, but they've had to sacrifice as a result of it. You have widows who've been left with children, having to raise them by themselves. Maybe they hadn't been working outside the home, those sort of things that adds to uh, the stress. So this is about the families. All these, all these men were somebody's son, somebody's brother, somebody's husband. Uh, I think it's, uh, I really believe it's incumbent upon those, those of us who are here to never forget the sacrifices of these officers who lost their lives in the line of duty. It's also incumbent upon us to never forget the families. Uh, Lee Tart was the, the latest law enforcement officer that was killed in the line of duty. Can you tell me about that situation? And this is before my time at Public Safety, but Lee used to work for me when I was MBN director. And uh, he was on SWAT team. It's a SWAT call-out. They had a barricade situation where a man had his wife and nine-year-old daughter held hostage. It went on for some hours, negotiations, trying to get him to put his weapon down and come out. Negotiations began to seriously deteriorate. At some point in time, he let the wife go, but he still had the, the little girl in the house with him. 
It deteriorated to the point where they were afraid some serious harm was going to come to the child, uh, whereupon a decision was made to, to enter the residence. And when the officers attempted to enter the residence or when they went in, they were taking fire. Three officers, three troopers were wounded. All of them survived. Uh, one of them had a more serious wound than the other two, although the other, they were all serious wounds. And all of them have had to go through quite a bit of surgery. But on that particular night, Lee took a round in a vital area and, as a result, passed away from a gunshot wound, doing his duty, doing what he took an oath to do. And they made a decision to go in there and try to rescue that little girl, and it, uh, it cost one of our officers his lives. These people go to work every day not knowing what they're going to encounter. And there are people out there that will say, well, they chose to do this, and that's true. It's just like soldiers choose to be in the military. But it's very difficult, very difficult for his team members. It's still difficult for them. They'll carry this the rest of their lives. So it, it is very meaningful to me personally that he's on that wall over there today because, like I say, I served with him. He worked for me. And not only, not only did he work for me, I considered him a friend. But I can tell you this, he was a fine Christian, and I know where he is today, so that's good. Do you think the public takes for granted the sacrifices that are made by law enforcement officers and their families? You know, I used to believe that, but I don't necessarily anymore, and I'll tell you why. These three troopers who were wounded, I sat down with them and talked to them at length a couple of months ago. And it was a difficult conversation because we talked about losing Lee. But all three of them shared with me that their faith got them through this. But one of them shared with me that said, you know, we in law enforcement sometimes develop a us versus them attitude. And it happens. It pretty much every officer goes through that over time. But he said, you know what I've learned during this is it's not us versus them. He said people came out of the woodwork, church group, faith-based groups, just citizens on the street, people he didn't even know knew him came up to him and thanked him for his sacrifice and for his hard work, and it just goes on and on. He says it never stops. And he realizes that the average person out there who gets up and goes to work every day and does their job, the non-criminal element, puts their kids through school, pays their bills, and they depend on people like Lee and these other officers to, like I said at the podium, stand on that wall between good and evil. And that, you know, originally... That's what government was originally formed for, was to protect people. That's where the police and military was generated, to protect people from those outside the wall that would do us harm. So, no, I think the average citizen out there does appreciate the officers. I think they appreciate their sacrifice. I think that what happens is all of us get involved in our day-to-day living you know, back and forth to work, going to ball games, whatever we do. And, you know, we, we take a lot of things for granted here in America. But I don't think the average citizen takes these men and women for granted. Marshall Fisher, the commissioner for the Department of Public Safety here in Mississippi. Thanks for being on Mississippi Edition. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
Happening today, the Mississippi Attorney General's Office, Mississippi Gaming Commission, and Special Olympics of Mississippi athletes will come together for the annual law enforcement torch run through Jackson. Each summer, law enforcement officials carry the flame of hope across the state, ending on the Gulf Coast with the lighting of the cauldron, which officially opens the Special Olympics Summer Games. The Jackson portion of the run begins at 10 a.m. and will conclude with a ceremony at the statewide Fallen Officers Memorial. Coming up, a South Mississippi mayor is joining fellow mayors in Washington, D.C. to talk about the common needs of Mississippi River cities. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Officials from the 31-state Mississippi River Basin are meeting to bring attention to the critical need for infrastructure improvements along the waterway. Mayor Daryl Grinnell of Natchez, Mississippi, is representing the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative in Washington, D.C. this week for the National Infrastructure Week. Experts say more funding is needed to improve conditions along the river and to ensure sustainability. People across 75 cities from Minnesota to Louisiana are depending on the Mississippi River for jobs, recreation, and even drinking water. Mayor Grinnell tells us more about his activities this week. I'm here for Infrastructure Week in D.C. I'm headed to the Department of Transportation as we speak to uh, to the maritime infrastructure needs of the nation as it relates to the uh, Mississippi River. And what do we need? What is going on at this point? I am talking about the collective effort of all the mayors up and down the river. Waterways and ports in the Mississippi River, 10-state corridor, moved $164.6 billion in agricultural products in the U.S. and foreign, foreign markets. 55 to 70% of all U.S. export corn, soil, we move on the Mississippi River. So we want to make sure that we continue to get the necessary funding in order to uh, maintain the economic benefits of the river to all of the cities up and down the Mississippi River. Infrastructure is very important. Also, when we talk about the uh, Corps of Engineers, you know, the work that they do on the river provides an economic benefit to all of the cities up and down the river. So it's important that... Uh, They understand that we need to continue to focus on the benefits of uh, enhancing the infrastructure. Just as an example, in Natchez, uh, my city, uh, one of the bridges that connect our city to Vidalia is undergoing a multi-million dollar restoration project. So that creates jobs. It also helps to uh, enhance, enhance the safety of the bridge. So, yeah, infrastructure is very important as it relates to the Mississippi River. What kind of funding specifically do you need in order to keep that economic flow going? Well, we definitely need the government to continue to support standards on high-quality uh, drinking water for all of the citizens. So there needs to be, uh, of course, the necessary funding in place to help all the cities up and down the river uh, in order to maintain good uh, standards as it relate to uh, high-quality drinking water. Uh, so we are encouraging them to continue to support um, those efforts. 
How many cities and towns does the, does your organization represent? Seventy-five. Uh, there are seventy-five uh, cities that are contiguous to the uh, Mississippi River. And you know, you mentioned that you're going to be talking about the Paris Agreement. What is important about that as it relates to the Mississippi River? It helps to create the export competitiveness. Are you saying that the Paris Agreement? withdrawing from it is going to be beneficial or not? More than $7.1 billion of manufactured goods and $5.6 billion in basic chemicals, well-consumed products, and uh, $33.6 billion in fuel product passed through the state of Mississippi ports and waterways to exports. So it keeps it competitive. You mentioned... To foreign markets. You mentioned flooding in the middle and lower stems of the Mississippi River as a concern. How much of a problem is that? Oh, flooding, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we're facing that as we speak today on the river. I mean, it it impacts us uh, significantly, uh, costing us millions of dollars. So the support there uh, from the federal government, especially the Corps, helps in terms of putting all of the things that need to be in place to uh, help communities as it relates to flooding. And I understand there was a spending bill was just passed by the federal government for what you're doing? Yeah, it's uh, $100 million for pre-disaster mitigation. Give us an example of what that means. Riverfront parks, flood absorption, levee rehabilitation. So that's good news. Uh, yes, ma'am, it is. What do you want people to take away from your presentations this week? The mayors of the Mississippi River are proposing $7.93 billion an infrastructure investment plan that supports seven major U.S. industry sectors, creates nearly 100,000 jobs. It continues 1.5 billion jobs. It sustains our ecological assets to uh, power our economy. It mitigates for hundreds of millions of dollars in disaster impact and generates $24 billion in economic activities. We just need... um, the support of the people of the various cities and contiguous communities to continue to work hard and contact our legislators and tell them to continue to support the efforts of the mayors as it relates to the Mississippi River. And tell us, the Mississippi River, you said there's 75 cities and towns. Where does it begin? Where does it end? 2,500 miles of river from Minnesota down to Louisiana. How do you feel about the response that you're getting in Washington? Are you meeting with any political leaders while you're there? I am anticipating good responses from the delegation. Yes, ma'am. That's the Mississippi delegation or more than that? Mississippi. All righty, Mayor Grinnell. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this important issue. And thank you so much. The initiative is an effort to bring national attention back to the Mississippi River, America's most critical natural asset. Coming up, find out how to donate organs while you're still living. That's after your Southern Remedy Health Minute. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Hello, Melanie. Hi. 
I had a question about the screenings you hear about periodically coming around that screen for aneurysms and carotid artery problems and such as that. Is that worth your time and money, or what's your opinion? All right, that's a, a really good question. A lot of churches and hospitals and other organizations have these screenings that include ultrasounds of the vessels as long as some blood work for cholesterol. They check your blood pressure. They may get a urinalysis. It varies depending on who's sponsoring it, how much money they're paying per capita for the people who who go to the screenings. These are double-edged because the more laboratory test that you get, this is statistical calculation, the more laboratory test you get, the more likely you are to get one that is a false positive. So if you get five or six lab tests, you're much more likely to get uh, something that is a false positive, that is an abnormality that isn't one, than if you select the test on the basis of the patient and their need for the test. So the risk is, is that you will get some results that will put you in a cycle where you end up having lots of contact with the medical establishment that you don't need. Now, I personally in favor of these, especially since very few of our people get the kind of preventive health care we should be getting. We should be getting all of our shots. We should be getting our blood pressure checked, our cholesterol checked, all that stuff regularly, especially if you're over 50. If you're obese, then you know you're at risk for everything. So, you know, it's a minimum of one year, if not every six months. I don't think there's a downside if it's the usual 30 bucks and you're getting all this information. But if you've already had the information, you don't need it. I would share the information with my doctor for further information and recommendations. For more health tips and medical information, listen for Southern Remedy each weekday at 11, where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue mobile app available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. More information at bcbsms.com. It's good to be blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippians can give the gift of life through a living organ donation. According to the University of Mississippi Medical Center, a donated living kidney may be a patient's best hope for long-term survival. Every day in the U.S., 22 people die waiting for a transplant. With almost 120,000 Americans on the national transplant waiting list, less than 31,000 transplants were performed in 2015. Dr. Jennifer Verbesey is director of MedStar Georgetown Hospital in Washington, D.C. The head of the Living Donor Kidney Transplant Program says only one in five organ donations come from living donors. Even more rare are people who donate kidneys to total strangers. Dr. Verbesey tells MPB's Karen Brown kidney disease is quite common. Kidney disease is actually much more prevalent in adults than really anyone ever realizes because really we only see the tip of the iceberg. Usually we think about the people that have severe kidney disease that are either on dialysis or are near dialysis, but an enormous amount of people, over 10% of the population in the United States has some form of kidney disease. And that's why um, it's such an important problem for us to pay attention to. Now, luckily we have dialysis, so that 
you know, helps us keep people alive. But the whole time you're on dialysis, your cardiovascular disease risk goes up. There's lots of other problems with dialysis. You have to have access, and that access can become clotted or infected. And so dialysis, while it keeps people alive, is a very difficult way to live. It's also and very time-consuming, isn't it? Very time-consuming. So they, you have to go in usually three times a week for at least four hours a day, and that makes it difficult to work or travel or do any of the things that we take for granted as part of our normal life. When transplanting a kidney, can that kidney come from a deceased person? Yes, there's two ways of getting a transplant. You can either get a deceased donor transplant or a living donor transplant. So deceased donors are usually people who are declared brain dead from either some sort of accident or some sort of illness, and then they can donate their organs. There's also people who are donors as deceased donors who are very, very close to that point that can also donate. And then, of course, there are living donors where someone who's alive is in very good shape and decides that they can donate one of their kidneys. Is there a difference in the success rate in the body accepting a kidney from those two types of donors? Yeah, that's why we always advocate if someone can find a living donor, living donor kidneys tend to work faster and last longer. And you really can gain extra years from getting a living donor over a deceased donor. The real problem with kidney transplants still is that kidneys don't last forever. So after you get a kidney transplant for the rest of your life, you have to take immunosuppression drugs. And very unfortunately, in the long term, while those immunosuppressants help the body not reject the kidney, over long term, they kind of chronically slowly injure the kidney as well. When that kidney begins to die, can the patient have a second kidney transplant? Absolutely. And since kidney transplants are so successful now, we have a whole huge list of people that are, you know, onto their second kidney. Hopefully that's 20 plus years after the, first, after the time they got their first one. But, yeah, there's lots of people out there now living who are having second or even third-time transplants. What should someone know before considering becoming a donor? What you should know is we put people through a very rigorous evaluation process. We want to make sure that their kidney functions well enough that they're going to be fine with just one kidney and the recipient's going to be fine with one of their kidneys. And we also want to screen people to see if we think they're at increased risk for kidney disease in the future. And if you go through all the extensive screening and everyone feels like it's okay for you to go forward, then those donors should be able to lead a very long and healthy and normal life after they donate. That's the goal. Can you tell us a little about the surgery and the recovery period? Sure. So for living donors, we do um, all the surgeries laparoscopically, meaning we use the video cameras and our tools, and it's minimally invasive surgery. People just get a couple of small incisions. You have to get at least one that's about six centimeters or so because we have to take the kidney out. Um, And then most people are in the hospital for either just one or two nights after surgery. takes about a week or maybe a little more than a week to really start to feel better. You know, you can have some soreness and tenderness for a few days. I find by two weeks, most people look about back to normal, maybe three weeks. We have people stay out of work for a couple of weeks if they can because you can be um, very fatigued for a little while. And then hopefully after that, you get back to your normal activities. Are people, living donors concerned that when they donate a kidney, they only have one kidney left and, and worry that something could happen to that one? I think every, it, would, it would be abnormal if you weren't worried about that. But 
the fact is that we have some very, very good studies, especially two that were published last year, that show that for these people that are properly screened, the chances of them having kidney disease in the future is incredibly low. It is very slightly higher than if you didn't donate a kidney, but it's still incredibly low. We're talking about less than 1%. What are the factors that determine whether someone's a match? We just have to look for two things. You have to basically be the same blood type, and then we look for something called a negative cross-match, which is looking at your antibody profile. But even for those things, sometimes we can do ABO incompatible, and sometimes we can do, if there's a positive cross-match, we have to treat the person before we do something called desensitization. We try to get rid of the antibodies before we go forward. But also, we are very active in national exchange programs, so if you come in with a donor who can't donate to you, you don't match each other. We also have other pairs that are in the same position, and a lot of times we can swap the donors and the recipients. So everyone still just gives a kidney, but everyone receives a kidney also, so it works out in the end. I encourage people, if they're thinking about this at all, to really contact the transplant center because I see too many people rule themselves out, and we've come a long way and there's many, many people who can donate, and there's also many, many people who can receive who maybe would have been turned away many years ago. Dr. Jennifer Verbesey is director of the Living Donor Kidney Transplant Program at the MedStar Georgetown Transplant Institute. Dr. Verbesey, thank you so much for some good information today. Okay, no problem. Thank you. You can find more information on becoming a living donor at msora.org. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, it's Fix It 101. At 10, Everyday Tech. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public.